Every week we love to open up God's Word. We believe that God's Word is um, our sufficient place where we get to have the truth that we need to know how to live in God's world. It's divine revelation, not just you know words made up by a dude called Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago, but from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we love to open the Bible um, because we get to hear from God. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Um, and this is the last message in our series, which we called Relaunch. Uh, the idea behind this series was for us as a church to kind of relaunch back into um, the mission of our church, which is to know, apply, and proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and particularly on that mission there, to proclaim the gospel. It's a weird season during COVID. It's a weird time to be trying to reach out because, you know, pretty much the predominant message is to stay away from people. Um, but we don't have that option as Christians. Um, we're called to reach out. And so how do we do that? Uh, the first week we looked at that Jesus called us to go and seek the lost. Uh, that Jesus' mission when he came on earth was to seek and save the lost. And we're caught up in that mission now, 2,000 years later. Then we saw in Romans 1 the power of the gospel. That when we preach these words about a dying and resurrecting man from Israel 2,000 years ago, God breathed power into that and saves people's lives. And not just their lives, but their eternal lives. And then last week we said, oh, well, what happens when you preach the gospel, someone's saved, everything changes. Well, then our calling as a church is to disciple the found. Seek the lost and disciple the found. That's the kind of paradigm of the church. And the final message for our little series on, on mission, I've entitled In It to Win It. Um, which is actually a sermon that uh, Pastor Dave Taylor preached right back at the start of the original Sovereign Grace Church plant in Australia. Um, and the idea being that we need to be in the world to win the world. Uh, and how do you go about making that happen? So more on that in a moment. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch up the back there, you can put your hand up and one of the stewards will get you one. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. For your glory and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've ever found like an incredible recipe for something that you really, really like. Um, we have one, it's a dessert recipe, it's for 
Nigella Lawson's chocolate cloud cake. Now, when I say we, I'm royal we. My wife, Maddie, who couldn't be here because she's looking up the kids, she does all the cooking and baking in the house, but I'm just going to put myself in as if I'm somewhat involved in the making of this cake. It's an awesome cake. You know, it's got no flour in it, so it's gluten-free. It's chocolatey and light, but it's got, you put cream on top and strawberries, and it's just, it's awesome. It's, our, it's one of our favorite cakes. It's a go-to recipe that we use all the time. Except because I never make it, I'm not really aware of what's in the recipe. Um, I'm not really aware of what the original recipe is. So when we're in the US and it came for a special occasion and someone said, hey, we really want to do something nice for Maddie. We want to make her her favorite cake. I said, oh, awesome. I know exactly the recipe to do. And so I just got a photocopy, someone to photocopy the recipe, Nigella Lawson chocolate cloud cake, and sent it through them. And they took it, and they made it, and then they presented this cake to Maddie, and it kind of looked about the same. And then we dug into it, and I hope they're not watching, you know. <laughs> it wasn't the same, let me tell you. you know, it was good, but not great. And I was like, what? And I said to Maddie, what? are you just a wizard? Like, why is this different? How is it? Why is the same thing? It's just a recipe. How, how did it not turn out right? And she said... Oh, I never actually followed the recipe properly. I've got all these different things that I do. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I wish I had known that. Um, and when you're trying to translate a recipe, not only do you need to know which ingredients to use, but it was an Australian recipe for America, so they had to translate from, you know, from metric into imperial. For some reason, they still use that system. I found out from Maddie that in the original recipe, there's like contro and orange rind, so it's a really orangey cake. So when we ate it, I was like, whoa, this is totally different. How did this happen? Well, because my wife never puts in the contro or the orange rind, and so it's really chocolatey and not orangey, and this time it was very orangey. Um, and then she uses different methods in cooking it. She doesn't do as much of one thing, and she doesn't leave it in as long until it's softer. And all those things came together, and I realized I needed to know the information so I could translate the recipe so that they could understand it better, so that actually we could all enjoy the amazing chocolate cloud cake the way it was meant to be enjoyed. And the reality of trying to share the message of Jesus Christ with people is a little bit like trying to translate this recipe to another culture. You see, we know how good the gospel is. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know how good the message is. We get inspired by it. We get encouraged by it. We live for it. We're like, this is the best news ever. You just got to know the message. And we just sometimes can just launch into telling people, just boom, here's the recipe, and we give it to them. And then it sort of just falls on deaf ears or they don't really understand what we're saying. They don't really felt won over by it. And that's because that we haven't taken the time to translate the recipe, so to speak. We haven't taken the time to what missiologists, which is like theologians who study mission, call contextualize the gospel. To take the old story of the gospel and put it into new ways of communicating them so that it actually makes sense to people so that when they take a taste they're getting the right flavor they're not getting contro and orange rind and you know burnt stuff they're getting the gospel in all of its beauty and its deliciousness you see in the words of paul from our passage he said this we need to become all things to all people by using all means in order that we might win some. Yes, we need to seek the lost. Yes, we need to preach the gospel. We can never change the message. 
It's powerful. But it's not that simple. It's not as simple as just straight out saying the same words that we've read and just it magically affecting people or them magically understanding it. The process of being in the world to win the world is challenging. It's hard. It takes sacrifice. It takes thinking. It takes wrestling with it so that you can translate the message in a way that they will actually hear it and be affected by it and won over by it. The main point I want to communicate today is this. And it's going to come back around to the contextualization later on, but it's this. We need to be in the world to win the world. We need to be in the world in order to win the world. And part of being in the world is taking this message and actually making it or helping it to make sense. Three points today. The challenge of being in it to win it, a model of being in it to win it, and an approach to being in it to win it. And if you're listening in and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not yet someone who you know has become a Christian, and you're thinking, man, this sounds like a sales thing. Why are you trying to you know manipulate it and change it? The reality is, because of the beauty of the gospel, because of how incredible this cake is. It wouldn't be right for us not to figure out the best ways to help other people enjoy it and understand it. And so listen in and hear of how we as Christians are trying to help you to understand how great the cake is and have open ears and understand that we're doing it out of love, not in this kind of weird way to just try and grow our tribe. It's not that. It's out of love because we want you to taste the cake and enjoy it too. So point number one, the challenge of being in it to win it. You see, Jesus has thrown us as a church and as followers of him into a challenging mission. We're sent into the world to save the world, but then we're given this massive calling to not become like the world, to not get too caught up in, you know, in that mission. It, it's a very, like, the tension is there. Um, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And so when we read a passage like 1 Corinthians 9 and Paul says, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some, there are two main dangers we can fall into that I wanted to address before we get into this process of how do we translate the gospel. Two main dangers of being in it to win it that we'll find. Number one, over-adapting to the world. That is, we're in the world, but we become of the world. And secondly, the other danger is under-adapting to the world. We're not really of the world, but we're not in it either. So as we go out on mission, we're called to deliver cakes, right? We've got these cakes and these recipes to deliver. And so some people read Apostle Paul's message in um, 9.22, become all things to all people, and they go, great, let's do that. Um, and so they change how they act and they dress and they talk and they're really good at being chameleons into culture. They flex, they adapt and so much so that people don't even know that they're Christians, right? And they're, they're so unawkward and unoffensive and they're so clear in the way that they communicate that people just think, oh, this is really normal person, really great, really relevant. And then sometimes people go so far that they even fall into just so not wanting to offend the people that they're with that are outside of the church, they do the same things as them. 
And over time, they begin to say the same jokes and make the same you know, swear words and watch the same shows. And over time, they become more and more like the world. Their morals are relaxed. And the, the danger for this type of person is that you end up being captured by the world rather than capturing it, so to speak. You become worldly, accepting and accepted by all, but compromised. And you could say in sort of the John 17 language, you are in the world, but you've become of the world. And when we over-adapt to culture and become too much like our culture in our attempt to translate the gospel for it, the problem is, is that we're actually not different enough to them. And we lose our credibility. We lose the light of the sharing of the gospel because we've lost our saltiness. We're just as bland. We're just as the same. And we become big on love. Like There's a great desire of the person who overdoes the culture. They really don't want to offend. They want to love people. They don't want people to feel awkward. or They don't want to see Christians as intolerant. So you're big on love, but light on truth. And the danger is, is that you never actually end up translating the recipe of the gospel to them. And for those of you who may not yet be believers or following Jesus, you might know Christians who are like this. They're like, oh, you're just like me. But over time, you probably will find that you may not respect them because they're relatable, but their beliefs are too weak. They obviously don't believe it themselves because they don't stick to their beliefs and they actually become like you. So that's the first challenge, over-adapting to the world. So we're called to be in it to win it. We're called to translate, but then we become like it. The second challenge, and I think the challenge that I face, and, and potentially more of us face um, in this room, depends on your circumstance, is that we under-adapt to the world. We under-translate the gospel. We just do what I did with Maddie's cake recipe, and I just chuck it out there and hope for the best. Out of fear of becoming sinful or tainted, or just pure forgetfulness of what it's like to be outside the church, we expect those who are outside to come to us, and we expect to be able to just give them the recipe with no translation. And so we end up living in a bit of a Christian ghetto, a bit of a bubble. We have our cozy meetings and our life groups and our songs and our prayers, and it's really lovely, but we're not actually in the world to win the world. We end up potentially having no actual meaningful or close relationships with people that are outside the church. And when we share the gospel, it can resemble like the Uber Eats driver who just places it and runs um, because of COVID safe, right? We kind of like, we don't think too hard about it and we just go and we share it and then take it how it is, whether it's good or not, or whether it's the thing you wanted or not, and there you go, and then we go. You see, the, the challenge for those who under-adapt is that we're not of the world, good, we're not meant to be like the world, we're called to be lights in the darkness, but we aren't in it either. So for those of us who are under-adapters, under-translators, we are big on truth, we want the truth of the gospel to be upheld and the message of the gospel to be preached, but sometimes we can be light on love because we love one another in the church, but we don't have a great heart for those outside of it. And you, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might know people like this too. 
Christians who are very quick to give an opinion or a truth or the gospel or tell you about God, but maybe don't express it with a whole lot of love and compassion and reasonableness. So where do you fall? But before we jump into how do we actually go about doing this, where do you fall on either side of the spectrum? Are you an over-adapter, becoming more and more like the world and less and less with the actual truth? Or are you an under-adapter? You kind of just be a Christian and same as you are in church, same in the world, and there's no difference, no translation, no sympathy, no change for how, where, how people are investigating their faith. Which one are you? For me, I struggle with the under-adaption um, at this point in my life. I used to be more in the over-adapt time, but now I'm in the under-adapt. So what do we do about it? Where do we go? How do we change? Well, let's read John 17 and just remind ourselves of the tension that Jesus has put us into. Okay, so it's, it's, it's not like, oh, the over-adapters are terrible, the under-adapters are terrible. It's, it's this tension that we've got to try and figure out. It's a tension that the Lord Jesus has put us in. Read John 17, verse 15 with me. He says this, as he speaks to his praise to God, sending out the disciples before he dies. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus puts us in this paradox. The challenge of we are sent into the world, but we can't become like the world. So how do we be in it to win it? Well, let's turn to point two now. A model for being in it to win it. In our model, um, we could look to the Lord Jesus Christ and his life. Um, We're going to do that for like two years in the book of Matthew. Um, So I thought today we'd look to someone else um, and we'd look to the Apostle Paul. Um, The Apostle Paul is someone who was able by the Spirit of God to maintain this challenge of not over-adapting, not under-adapting, not over-translating, not under-translating the message of the gospel. And so when we come to this passage that I read at the beginning um, this afternoon, We come in this series of um, chapters where Paul is trying to help the Corinthian church figure out how do you be a Christian in this mixed world? How do you be Jewish, you know, previously you're a Jew, now you're a Christian, previously you're a Gentile, it means a non-Jew, you're Christian. How how do you do that? How do you do that well? Um, And there's all these challenges in the church about what foods they can and can't eat and what things they can do. And so Paul says this in verse 12b. He says, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And in this argument, Paul is basically saying that whatever we do, lay down your preferences, lay down your rights, lay down your privileges, lay down whatever you can so that there is no obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward. And then he goes on in verses 19 to 23 to lay out the passage that we saw earlier. And in this passage, we kind of see Paul's paradigm for evangelism and mission in a world of plural ideas and different perspectives and different lifestyles. 
So let's track it through. How does Paul go about not putting any obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ? How does he endure anything so that that can happen? Well, let's read verse 19 again. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. You see, Paul's reigning paradigm is that although he is free in Christ, those who are free in Christ lay themselves down now as slaves of Christ. And so his reigning paradigm is to go out in mission as a servant of those who are outside of the gospel. He doesn't make use of his rights. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. And see his goal? That I might win more of them. See, Paul is willing to sacrifice his preferences and his comfort and his privileges and even his rights. He, he, he doesn't even take a wage from the Corinthians for the sake of not putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel so that he might win more of them. And five times in this passage, he talks about this idea of winning people. He wants to see people won. He's hungry for those who are outside of God's kingdom to come in. I experienced this acutely this week as my grandmother passed away on Friday and considering her eternal state, considering the eternal state of family and friends and relatives and actually earlier in COVID, one of my other grandparents passed away again. I was thinking about that and realizing just how urgent it is to win people to the faith. Death is the great ultimatum. There's no more hope after that if you are outside of Christ. And so Paul, although he's free, makes himself a servant so that he might win people. How's your heart for winning people to Christ? So what does it look like? What barriers does he break down? He lists a whole number of them in the preceding verses. Look at verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. And again, that I might win those under the law. You see, Paul was a very Jewish man before he came to Christ. He followed all the commandments and all the regulations to the nth degree, and then Jesus appeared to him um, and, you know, his world was turned upside down because he realized that Jesus Christ was God and was resurrected from the dead. It wasn't just a story that these disciples were making up. It was the real deal. And so Paul realized that a lot of the Jewish practices that he had to do were actually fulfilled in Christ. They were no longer necessary. Yet. As he went out to try and preach the gospel to people who were Jewish and still trapped in that way of thinking, he would take on unnecessary restrictions on his diet, on his body, and even on some of his companions. Poor old Timothy, the Greek-born Christian, had to get circumcised at one point in order that they could reach out to Jewish people. Sucks to be Timothy, right? Um, But in order to win the Jews, he takes on all these unnecessary sacrifices that he might win them. Now, he says in the caveat, you know, though I'm not under the law, so he's not saying we need to do these things to be saved, but he's saying that in order to actually win a hearing with Jewish men and women, 
in order to, for them to hear him and be won over by him, he would preach from the Old Testament scriptures. He would take vows and actually complete them. He would not cause an offense necessarily by not eating, you know, with, uh, with, uh, not eating unclean things so that he could win more of them. But then at other times, he doesn't flex and doesn't adapt. Good old Titus, you know, he doesn't have to get circumcised in the book. You know, we read in Galatians that Titus was free from that. Uh, and so there's times where Paul shows us this, this, this tension. Sometimes he adapts and takes on the restrictions, and sometimes he says, no, now's not the time. It's not necessary. And so there is this balance. It's hard to understand how to do it all the time. It's art and not science. So that's to the Jews. Now read verse 21 to 22. Now, to those outside the law, that means like the, the Greeks and the people like you and I who aren't Jewish background believers, I became as one outside the law. And again, he gives this caveat, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And again, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. So now when Paul goes out to reach Gentile believers, he changes tact. He removes all of his Jewish background and past and dietary restrictions and anything that's outside of you know, Christ's law and anything that he doesn't need to do to obey Jesus, he gets rid of it. Even sometimes if you read through the book of Acts and you read all of Paul's speeches, when he preaches to Jewish people, he references the Old Testament. When he preaches to Gentiles, though, and you see that in Acts chapter 16 and 17, he actually references the philosophers and the poets of his age. He doesn't begin with a Bible reading, he begins with a philosophy reading. And he commends them for their belief in an unknown God. Because Paul is a very tricky one to figure out, because sometimes he looks like the staunch, you know, like, give him the truth and nothing else. And other times I'm like, wow, why are you quoting, you know, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, some ancient philosopher. You see, Paul is always adapting and flexing in order that he might win more. Yet he never adapts or flexes to the point where he's outside of the law of Christ. So he puts these caveats in. I become under the law to win those under the law, though I'm not actually under the law. And to those outside the law, I become outside the law, though I'm not outside the law of Christ. You see, he's in, but not off. He's not over-adapting. He's not under-adapting. But he's changing. He's flexing. He's serving, he's sacrificing his preferences and his rights and what he would like to do so that it's easier to win more people to Christ. So that he doesn't put up any unnecessary obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he finishes. I have become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. He flexes to win, but not fit in. And so for us, we learn from this that our mission as a church requ requires flexibility, adaptation, and sacrificial laying down of our own preferences and privileges in order to win those who are outside of Christ. We need to be in the world to win the world, but we must not become of the world. And I think this is what 
spurred him on. This is how he actually laid his life down. Look at verse 23. This is his ultimate goal. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? That I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is motivated by a deep love for those who are outside of Christ. He wants them to be co-heirs with Christ. He wants them to have all their sins forgiven. He wants them to be resurrected on the final day. He wants them to become new creatures in Christ. And so he imagines seeing Greek and Jew and all these different people being won over to the gospel. And he thinks, I just want to share in the blessings together. I want to gather as churches with these new believers. So I'm going to lay down my life, my preferences, my rights, so that I might win more. Yet he never compromised or diluted his message. He wanted the message of the cross to be the offensive part, not his practice, not his attitude, not his demeanor. The message, not the method. And you might be thinking, oh, is this just for Paul? Or, you know, he's a pretty epic missionary, but is this for each one of us? You know, or is this just a Paul thing, right? You know, we can just give it over to Paul and be like, Paul did that, good for you. Well, if you look in chapter 10, verse 32 and verse 11, he says this, and it's a very similar thing. He says, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of so we don't get off on this one. This is our duty as well. We've been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to win the world, to save the world, not causing offence, not being a stumbling block in our action or our attitude or our behaviours that are unnecessary. So do you have a heart to win people? Do you share this desire to share in the blessings of the gospel with those of your friends and family and co-workers that are outside of Christ? How's your heart at the moment to win those who are outside of him? And how are you going flexing and not like flexing, flexing? Although like a bunch of us guys in church are doing 100 push-ups a day, um, so we have plenty to flex about at the moment. But how are you going flexing your preferences and the way you do life so that you might win more? It can be in big things or little things. You know, like if you go into different cultures, you know, some cultures it's shoes off in the house and you might be like, oh, I feel weird about feet. Like, well, take your shoes off for the sake of winning people to the gospel. You might have a policy for your kids, no screen time. They shall not have a screen. Now, I know like that lasts about six months for most parents, but maybe there's some of you that are like, we shall not do screen time. But there's a family nearby that you want to reach out with and you want to have a play date with, but you know there's going to be a TV on. Maybe you flex, you adapt, you sacrifice your right to have no screen time for your child so that you can be in their home and win them for the gospel. Perhaps you go into someone else's house and they have all different idols because they are from a different religion. We've had that. And you might be uncomfortable. You might not want to be around the idol. Again, 
perhaps it's an opportunity to adapt, to lay down your preferences and things that might find weird for you. Or even at work. You know, everyone wants to listen to a particular radio station and it has bad songs and songs you don't like and inappropriate, you know, presenters and you're like, oh, this is you know, affecting me and, you know, I'm becoming, you know, affected by it. And you think, I'm just going to change the station every day. I'm going to put on Hope 103.2, you know, moral, you know, good, good stuff. Bad music, but good morals, you know. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe you just let them listen um, and don't cause an unnecessary offence where you don't have to. I'm not giving any rules. I'm just trying to give some examples of like low-level areas where we might need to flex and adapt that we might win some. Particularly for those of us who are under-adapted, right? So for those of us who are very church and not very in the world. David Pryor says it like this in his commentary. Paul's versatility in seeking to win men of all backgrounds to Christ challenges us to cross the culture gap between the Christian subculture of cosy meetings and holy talk and the pagan culture of our local community. The task of identification with and incarnation into our contemporary paganism of all kinds is one of the biggest tasks confronting the church. It's a hard job to be in but not all, to be translating the recipe without changing the ingredients and, and, and getting rid of all the offensive parts. It's hard. So how do we go about doing this? Point number three. An approach to being in it to win it. So point number one was the challenge of being in it to win it. We're called to do it. Under doubt, over doubt. That's the challenge. We've seen Paul's example in point number two, a model. He flexes and adapts so that no obstacle is in the way of the gospel, so that he might win some. So how do we go about actually doing that a little bit more practically, and especially in our communication of the gospel? So there's little practical things we can do in the way we live. We don't wear, like, I don't wear a collar, and, you know, we don't wear, like, a Sovereign Grace dress that we have to wear everywhere. We're not part of a cult. So those more obvious things are taken away. But when it comes to actually communicating and talking with people and trying to translate the actual message of the gospel while you have, you know doing some electrical work, you know, Doug and Murray, or, you know, teaching at school, or, um, you know, you're making coffees as a barista, or you're at university. How do you actually communicate the gospel differently? Well, remember, well, actually, not remember. Um, I think that Tim Keller, if, you, if you've heard his name, Tim Keller's got a great, huge amount of resource on this topic about how do we contextualize the gospel. And I just want to put forward his three-step process. So how do you contextualize and adapt the gospel without over or under-adapting? How do you do it in a balanced way? So Tim Keller gives this illustration in his book, Center Church. And he says that if you want to build a highway um, and you know, you've got to go through boulders and rocks in order to do it, there's a lot of demolition work that has to happen. Um, and obviously, you know, for those who are outside of Christ, there's all these obstacles in their heart, in their world, in their life, um, and we need to remove those obstacles somehow. And so in a demolition work for a road, what you do is when you come to a massive, huge boulder, um, what they do is they drill a shaft all the way into the center of it, and then they lay explosives down into the center of the rock, and then they blast the explosives so that it breaks it from the inside and cracks it and actually destroys the rock and then they can clear it and build the highway through it. 
it's a three-step pro or a two-step process. They need to drill first, enter in, and then explode and actually do the breaking apart bit. If you just drill the hole and never plant the explosive, well, the boulder stays there, right? It's just a holding boulder, right? <laughs> but if you just put explosives on the outside, you just knock away at the face of it and make a whole lot of mess and dust and cloud. You won't actually move the boulder. And so what you have to do is drill and blast. And it's kind of a good analogy for how we go about entering into this world in order to communicate the gospel. Tim Keller gives a three-step process, which I think reflects really biblically and faithfully what Paul does. Three steps. Oh, I'll turn my page and then I won't lose track of what I'm saying. Enter the world, that is drill the hole. Challenge the world, blow the explosives. And appeal to the world that you might win them to Christ. Firstly, we need to enter the world. We need to drill in. We can't be on the outside hoping that people just come. We can't be lobbing gospel bombs and verses on the internet and just hoping if we do a quick post of a sermon on Facebook that all of our friends will miraculously become Christians. God can do it, but Jesus has sent us into the world. So we need to enter the culture. We need to enter in and find inroads and sort of drill through and actually find ways that speak to people's hearts. The real questions that they're asking, the real hopes and fears and dreams and um, thoughts that they have, the real obstacles that they have. We need to enter in. We need to speak in a way that actually makes sense to them. So we spend so much time reading the Bible, it's like second nature, right? But we need to translate ideas and concepts and words so that they actually understand it. Take for instance, oh, sometimes we preach the gospel a little bit like this. Hutos ha, egatsen ho, feos ton kosmon, hoste ton, weon ton, monogene edokin, kinapas ho pestion, es alton me apoletai, ala eche zoen ionion. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We read it in Greek. We say that and we think that makes so much sense, but they hear, and I won't say it again, but they hear Greek, right? We need to use accessible vocabulary, things that make sense to them in their world. Going by Paul's example, we can use sources and authors that they see as authoritative. Start with people that they already agree with. Start with their common assumptions that they already believe to be true and work your way in. And demonstrate an understanding of objections and doubts and fears that they really have. And don't belittle them. Know people so empathetically and lovingly that you can feel their doubts and their fears about the Christian faith. Learn to express it better than they can themselves. And when you're entering in, try as best you can to affirm what can be biblically affirmed before you bring the challenge. So we're meant to enter first and then challenge. We don't always start with blasting the outside of the rock. We need to enter in. So for instance, in the common culture at the moment with you know, Black Lives Matter and all this beautiful call for racial justice and equality, you know, there can be a temptation 
when people see, like Christians see Black Lives Matter, and we go, well, that's a neo-Marxist, you know, cultural Marxist organization. How could you support such an organization? Because they have all of these bad worldviews and theology that goes behind it. And we don't actually enter into the common and beautiful objection that they have, which is black lives matter. People of all races and cultures should be valued and should be loved and cared for equally. And so we don't need to start with the challenge. We start with, wow, they think that black people are equal to white people and, and Asian people and all types of people. Affirm them where they can be affirmed. Enter in by agreeing with what is biblical. But if you only do that, if you only drill in, you end up over adapting to the culture. You leave a big hole, and you're in there, and nestled in there, hanging out with them in the middle of the boulder, but nothing's going to change. So secondly, we need to challenge the culture. We need to go in, and we actually need to plant the bomb of the gospel. We need to confront ungodly and worldly philosophies and ideologies. It's not good enough just to be best mates with everyone who's outside of the church. We actually need to challenge them. And we need to challenge them, their ideas and their beliefs, in a way that's winsome, thoughtful. I'm just thinking about how much time I got. For instance, let's go with that one. So you, you might say, okay, Black Lives Matter, um, you know, human rights, everyone has equal human rights. I agree with you, that is awesome. How do you arrive at that position? Why do black lives matter? You ask the question and see what their answer is. And they might go to science or they might just go to a sentimentality. They might go to a philosophy like humanism or something like that. And you can begin to challenge them and just ask more questions. But, but if we're all just you know cells, then why does one particular cell have any more value over another? Or why does your philosophy of humanism outweigh the racist philosophy of triumphalism over one culture or supremacy over one culture. Actually, the only way that we can arrive at humans having equal dignity, value, and worth is if they have that value bestowed upon them externally. That's why we actually need a creator. We need a creator God who deems all people to be equal in order for us to have human rights. And so I love the fact that you support Black Lives Matter, but... I think that we need to believe in God for black lives to really matter. Otherwise, there's all these problems with the philosophy, and it will just change upon people's sentiments and their ideas. And then you tell them about there's actually a creator God. He created all people equal, and everyone's put in the image of God. You've entered in, you've, you've found biblically where they are, you've drilled a hole, but then you challenge and confront them. And then thirdly, you appeal to them. You appeal to the culture. You, you blow the gospel bomb, so to speak, but then you call them to Christ. And you say, you know what? There's so much injustice in the world, isn't there? There's so much breaking down of you know, communities and based on race and economy and intellect and all these different things. The amazing thing, and this is why I follow Jesus, is because although he is the supreme, superior one, he actually came down to earth and he became the oppressed one on our behalf. He was oppressed by the people that had power, so that all those who were oppressed by the power of sin could be liberated. He was shamed on the cross so that all those who experienced shame of their life and shame that other people put onto them, maybe for their skin color, can experience freedom from their shame and their guilt. And you can go on 
and use different ways of actually preaching the gospel that fits in with what they're thinking about and what they're passionate about in order that you might win some. So we've got this three-step method. If we want to win people, there's many obstacles, right? And that's why Paul says that I might win some. <laughs> Even the Apostle Paul isn't thinking that everyone's going to be one. He knows the seed falls on different ground. But in order that we might win some, we need to enter the culture. Be Jews to the Jews, Greeks to the Greeks, weak to the weak. We enter in. But then we challenge the culture. We don't over-adapt, under-adapt. We come in and we bring the gospel story into it and appeal for them to now come to Christ and experience what they were hoping for and dreaming for in this world outside of him can only be found in him. So, brothers and sisters, as we finish this series, we need to be in the world in order to win the world. As Paul said, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. It takes sacrifice. It takes thinking. It takes hard work. It's not easy. But like Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And what was he imitating of Christ? Well, the great adaptation to culture. The great one who came into the world in order to win the world. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, and the Word, that is the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we can do this because the Son of God contextualized to us. He came down as a man and dealt with the problem as a human being in a way that only he could do. And then he sends us out in his presence by his spirit to join him in his task of winning the world. And so we don't do this in our own strength or by our own power. We do it following the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who became just like us so that he could win us. He sacrificed everything, his position in heaven and his, his eternal realm in order that you might be one. And now he calls you and I to lay down our rights and privileges, to enter the culture, to challenge the culture, to appeal to the culture, that we might share in the blessings of the gospel with those who are one to him. Let's do it, not by our own power, but by his. Let's not do it alone so that we fall into the traps of over or under adaption. Let's do it together. And let's do it for his glory and for the joy of those who are outside of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I pray and ask that you would move my heart and our hearts to go about this incredibly difficult tension, this dance of not over-adapting, not under-adapting, to be in the world, to win the world. Would you help us to be creative, thoughtful, sacrificial, and humble? God, would you help us to translate the recipes so that they might enjoy the chocolate cloud cake of the gospel, Lord. We ask that people would taste and see that you are good. And we thank you in advance that even though we will fail and that we will not do this well, 
that the gospel is powerful and save regardless. So Lord God, would you help us send us out in the name of Jesus Christ to win the world for your sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.